Welcome to a Friday night edition of Navara Live. I am, of course, joined by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm very, very well, Michael. It's very hot. I'm, uh, I'm not trapped in a prison cell. Um, I am, in fact, in the same room as we usually have down the line in the studio. It's just we've moved the camera around. We'll keep your heat in mind. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll make allowances for that. It is harder to think in the heat, I have to say. Um, personally, I've had some bad news today. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know what I'm talking about. If not, um, we will be talking about it in the second half of the show. Not so bad. You need to worry about it. Just frustrating. Um, we will also, as well as my bad news, um, be talking about Ian Dale coming to a realisation about Mick Lynch's rightness. Um, we're going to be talking about the tragic shipwreck in the Mediterranean. And also, we're going to start with Boris Johnson, what everyone else is talking about. Less than a week after resigning as an MP, Boris Johnson has already got a new job. He'll be writing a weekly column for the Daily Mail. Here's the promo video. It is going to be exactly what I think. Hi folks, Boris Johnson here. I am thrilled to be asked to contribute a column to the Daily Mail. It is going to be completely unexpurgated stuff. I may even have to cover politics, but I'll obviously try to do that as, as little as possible, unless I absolutely have to. I'm much looking forward to making my first contribution to those illustrious pages on Saturday. Join me in the Daily Mail on Saturday. Boris Johnson will be earning what is said to be a high six-figure sum. In fact, a very high six-figure sum. So one assumes that means more than half a million pounds. Um, Aaron, will you be reading Johnson's column? Probably yes, Michael, because sadly it's part of my job. Um, but uh, it's not something I'll be looking forward to. And I, I just get the sense of this, Michael, that he, he's just kind of finished. It's a strange product. I mean, it's going to get click, clicks, it's going to get traffic. So what? And then the secondary point Obviously, he wrote at The Telegraph for so long. He was previously an editor at The Spectator, both with titles owned by the Barclay Brothers. It is somewhat strange he's not returned there, partly because of the financial difficulties of the previous owners, I suppose, now being sold. Um, so, interesting. I might be wrong. And look, it's probably a useful launch pad if he wants to have another tilt at a political career later on in life, which we shouldn't write off. But it is rather strange to pay a has-been so much money. Well, I mean, it has been. As a former prime minister, I think it's a bit of a coup for the for the male, to be honest. I mean, people say, well, who wants to hear from this guy? I'm, I'm sure a lot of people want to hear from the guy. Um, I don't especially, but as I say, um, or as you say, Aaron, probably I will be reading it too because it's part of our job. Um, the row about Boris Johnson's legacy is still raging. On Channel 4 News, the issue was debated between political editors at The Express and The Guardian. So this is David Maddox and Pippa Krarar. Have you got any evidence for members being supportive of Boris Johnson, despite everything? See, I mean, it's quite a charge sheet, isn't well, it? Well, I mean, from, from their perspective, he didn't do any of those things. And from a great deal of his supporters' perspective, he didn't do those things. But this has been a, a project right back from a referendum to portray Boris as a habitual liar and to, you know, uh, discredit him and discredit Brexit. It's, it's nothing to do with Brexit yeah. or the referendum. And Boris Johnson, frankly, has been a bit habitual liar his entire career. He was sacked from one of his first jobs as a reporter on The Times for lying. He was sacked in one of his first front, front bench jobs for the Conservative Party for lying. He lies frequently. This place calls it misleading. But let's call it what it is. It's lies. Look, you know, he's a hugely charismatic leader. 
in the end, this he, comes he's back... He's a liar. Well, I, I, you know, I would disagree with that. I mean, express readers, I could promise you, don't think he's a liar. The, you know, the messages we've been getting today from express readers, from members of the Conservative Party, is that he's not a liar. But, but have you been, been feeding them the lies that he's repeating? No, not at all, not at all. You know, this is this is a guy who was elected in 2019 as a prime minister with a huge mandate and has been toppled by an establishment that That's... wants rid of him. Express readers don't think he's a liar. Uh, it was less clear what Mr Maddox himself thought. I suppose he said, I disagree, but he didn't really give any evidence that the guy hasn't lied. He just said a bunch of other kind of irrelevant things to the, the question of whether or not the guy lies. Right? He said, but he got a big mandate in 2019. OK, sure, we can agree on that. Then he lied about a bunch of stuff. Former Conservative MP Gavin Barwell was pretty certain about what he thinks. We've never before had a prime minister of this country found to have deliberately misled the House. And, you know, if you go on Twitter, there's a whole load of people saying, oh, this was just all about eating a bit of birthday cake. You know, actually, this is a very, very serious thing. It cuts to the absolute core of our democracy about whether we can trust what ministers say at the dispatch box. If the House of Commons confirms the judgment of the Privileges Committee on Monday, you know, then it's really difficult, I think, to see how the Conservative Party could allow him to be a candidate again, at least until Lewis there's some contrition and that he recognises what he's done wrong. What I think makes this even worse is that he is continuing to deny the facts and to very aggressively you know, criticise them. Current government ministers are avoiding questions about Boris Johnson, but a few loyal backbenchers have gone out to bat for their hero. Here is Brendan Clark-Smith on Newsnight. Mr Johnson had point. multiple occasions to give evidence. He presented written evidence. He presented oral evidence. Uh, he had 250 grand of taxpayers' money to pay for his lawyers, even though he's earned £6 million since September. I mean, you're not, you're not saying he's a victim here, are you? Well, I wouldn't have had the inquiry in the first place, quite frankly, because that, I think... That wasn't uh, the question. Well, I mean, the point what, is, he what, is entitled what, sorry, to what, defend what, himself. What was my... And he has. What was he, my question? Well, he's entitled to defend himself with the facts that are there. He's very forthcoming towards the committee. He does not feel he has been treated fairly. Now, if you look at his statement that he said, he's identified a number of areas where he doesn't feel that process has been uh, followed correctly, where they've gone outside the original remit with the definitions and so on. And then he's also raised specific questions about the committee itself. Now, if I were Boris Johnson, I'd want all those addressed. Now, he's resigned as an MP. He's already gone now. Yeah. Uh, so he's he cannot... avoided democracy, actually. He's chosen not to put his case to you and your colleagues in the House on Monday, and he's chosen not to face voters in his own constituency. That's how much he likes democracy. Well, he agreed to this on the basis that he thought he would get fair treatment. And when he saw the report, he felt that that was not the case and it wouldn't be possible to actually do that. When the committee finds he deliberately misled, he decides, oh no, I think this is an unfair process. But the committee again has changed. They've changed from the number of days. Even today, we've heard they've added extra on for criticising the committee. Now, as a parliamentarian, you expect to be able to scrutinise, you expect to be able to object, to be able to debate. If you're not going to able not to... trash it, though. Well, not trash it, no. And we ex except they've got a very difficult job to do on these committees. I have a lot of respect for people no, you who don't. do it. Well, you're you calling them a kangaroo court. Don't, don't, don't be disingenuous. Well, you don't I have respect for them. Well, I said I'd read the report first. I did that. I read the report when it was published and then when I've looked into it. And if we're talking about courts, Victoria, if this were a real court of law, this would have been thrown out straight away. There is no way on the basis that this has been set up in terms of how it's decided, in terms of the evidence is there, that this will pass the threshold. You're a member of the House of Commons. Parliament instructed the committee to do this. Boris Johnson set the Privileges Committee up.
There will be a vote on Monday where MPs get the chance to vote to endorse or reject um, the report from the Privileges Committee into Boris Johnson. Um, Tim Loughton is a Tory MP who will be voting for it. This report's going to go through. The opposition parties will vote uh, for it. And um, I'm going to vote for it. And frankly, I think many Conservative MPs will vote for it as well. We voted to set up this uh, uh, committee. We have voted for the chair of the committee. So we need to support its its work. And whether or not people like the uh, the outcome, it's a legitimate committee of the, uh, uh, of the House. And it's a pretty damning report. And it's a very sad end to um, Boris Johnson's parliamentary career. But He's brought it upon himself and he's decided rather than to stand his ground and argue his case, he's decided to flounce out of Parliament as he resigned last uh, uh, last week. So I can't see any option but for people uh, to vote for this and to vote against it, uh, I think would just be crazy. So there have been Tories like Brendan Clark-Smith, who you heard from earlier, who've said um, they would vote against the report from the Privileges Committee. However, it seems that in the end, the Johnson loyalists might not want a fight. So this is from Emilio Casaliccio from The Guardian. Scoop seems Boris supporters might be willing to let the Privileges report lie. Former Boris Johnson PPS James Dudridge expects no vote, i.e. no dissent to report, so it gets nodded through tells me I don't think there is going to be a vote. I think people want to just move on. So as happens in Parliament, you only get a proper vote if someone says, we want a vote. If when the the, the Speaker sort of says, does anyone object? If no one objects, then it just gets nodded through. And it seems as if Boris Johnson's people would prefer it to get nodded through than for there to be a count of, of the people who reject it and for the number who reject it to be a somewhat miserable one. So they, they don't want to fight. Um, Aaron, this decision to not have a vote on this report, even though Boris Johnson and his people are calling it a kangaroo court and an outrage and disgrace, I mean, it does suggest they don't think there is that much momentum behind them. You know, Boris Johnson just wants to leave, start his journalistic career and leave this all behind him for now, at least. And make money. You missed that bit, Michael. Make money. A lucrative uh, post-premiership speaking circuit awaits. I'm sure the Daily Mail won't be the only title where he publishes his musings on a, on a, on a weekly basis. Presumably there'll be a, a Sunday publication too. Maybe a TV show somewhere, who knows? Uh, although he won't come cheap. So, yeah, look, I, I'm sure he doesn't really mind. And I, I have to say, Michael, one thing we've not really mentioned here is the electoral dynamic, which is, I think this is very good for Rishi Sunak, and it's very good for the Conservative Party leadership going into the next general election. That's not to say <laughs> everything's uplit Sunderlands and they're, you know, they're galvanized and they think they can win. But make no mistake about it, Boris Johnson, after the last 18 months, has become a massive electoral liability, particularly amongst swing voters, particularly amongst swing voters. Die-hard Tory voters in the shires or hardcore Brexiteer voters in, in newly won seats in 2019, maybe not. But in terms of those seats and those voters that they really are worried about, who may vote Lib Dem across the South and Southwest, um, he, he, was a, he was a dead weight, he was a liability. So I think this, this could be the difference between you know, winning or losing for a, for a few MPs. Now, they might, they might not change. You know, they might continue this sort of this head spin into oblivion. But I think with Boris Johnson gone and then with the conference coming up in September, you know, you can see a you can see a route to something at least resembling a quasi normality for Rishi Sunak. So, for him and the Conservatives, it's something of a blessing in disguise. And again, to repeat, I'm not saying they're now galvanised and they're going to you know get a polling lead amongst Labour against Labour. Rather, I'm not suggesting that for a moment. But this does feel like a definitive end to a really shocking period for them. You know, remember, 
in, um, in, in the spring, summer of 2021, they were flying high in the polls. There were several hundred votes of winning the Batley and Spent by-election. And I think that would have meant that Keir Starmer would have had to resign as Labour Party leader. So an amazing turnaround, a remarkable fluffing uh, of the situation by Boris Johnson, frankly, since 2019. But positive benefits, I feel, for his uh, successor but one Rishi Sunak. I suppose the curveball is if Boris Johnson were to back some kind of uh, separate party. Because, you, you, you know, obviously it's, it's now a minority of the electorate, or a fairly small minority of the electorate, who are really committed to Boris Johnson. But a small minority of the electorate can be enough to lose you quite a lot of seats. So if Boris Johnson were to team up with Nigel Farage and do some reform, part, I mean, I don't think he will do this, but this seems somewhat hypothetical. I think probably he wants to wait in the wings and potentially come back and, you know, relead the Tory party in five or ten years or something. But if he were to sort of pitch himself as an alternative to Sunak at the next general election, presumably that could do some damage. Plausibly, Michael, but I think that's too much like hard work for Boris Johnson. You know, and I think it's actually, I think it's unfair to Nigel Farage to put them in the same breath politically. Nigel Farage built a political brand in this country from scratch, UKIP, which was the first party which is what was not Labour or the Conservatives to come first in a national election, I think, for the best part of 100 years, um, which was UKIP in the 2014 European elections. He then does the same thing again with the Brexit party in 2019. I think to, in the 2015 general election, they get almost 4 million votes. So I think to compare somebody like Nigel Farage, you might not agree with this. Obviously, I don't agree with his politics. But to, I think to sort of compare him to Boris Johnson, I think is, is not quite right. Boris Johnson has played everything on easy mode, from becoming a journalist, to becoming a backbencher, to becoming a cabinet minister, to becoming the prime minister. And that wouldn't be the same. If he started an insurgent party to the right of the Tories, that would not be easy mode anymore. So I don't know. You're absolutely right speaking in sort of, you know, a purely speculative frame. Would it cost the Tories lots of votes? Well, yes, of course it would. Look at the role of the Brexit party um, in the 2019 general election, just standing in places where it could hurt Labour. You know, some assessments say that actually that doubled the Tories' majority. So of course it's a variable. You know, Labour's majority could be doubled plausibly if you have a party to the right of the Tories doing really well. Uh, finally, the politics of Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson are quite different. You know, Nigel Farage has Thatcherite economics. Let's say they agree on that bit. But he also embodies far more popular views on things like law and order and migration that Boris Johnson is generally demurred from. So I'm not quite sure how stable any political party or coalition they seek to build together would be. Let's go straight on to our next story. 78 people have been confirmed dead and up to 500 are missing after a boat capsized off the coast of Greece on Wednesday. Among the missing are thought to be around 100 children. This is how the BBC reported on the disaster. The true scale of this disaster is not yet known, but it's clear it's extremely bad. More than 100 people were rescued, but survivors claim up to 700 people were on board the boat when it began to sink. And this was the vessel packed in the deepest part of the Mediterranean Sea. No one seemingly wearing a life jacket. It is indeed a tragic situation, a very difficult situation with a very large number of shipwrecked people. A number I think we haven't faced in the past to such an extent. I'm afraid the number of victims will be higher because the number of people on board was much higher than the capacity that should be allowed for this boat. Those aboard are thought to have set out from Libya and were heading for Italy. The Greek Coast Guard 
said they approached the boat, but their offer of help was rejected. We are shocked. We are shocked, like everyone in Greece. Obviously, after we were informed of this incident, all services were mobilized. The municipality of Kalamata, healthcare, etc., we have prepared. We are hearing that, unfortunately, the number of dead is increasing. But as Greece's president visited the scene, a charity that supports migrants was accusing the Greek authorities of knowing about the boat being in distress for hours before going to its aid. The disaster has prompted more calls for a joint effort to reduce the number of crossings. This is yet another example of the need of member states to come together and create orderly, safe pathways for people forced to flee and for comprehensive action to save lives at sea and reduce perilous journeys. So as you heard in that clip, the Greek Coast Guard have defended their decision to come or their decision not to come to the aid of the boat. They say people on the boat rejected their offer for help as they wanted to keep going to Italy. So they say, we offered to help and they didn't want it. Now, others have argued that that excuse doesn't stack up. This is from The Guardian. Prof. Eric Rosaic of the University of Oslo's Institute of Private Law said maritime law would have required Greek authorities to attempt to rescue if the boat was unsafe, irrespective of whether those on board had requested it or not. Greek authorities had a duty to start rescue procedures given the condition of the trawler, Rosaic told Associated Press, adding that a captain's refusal of assistance could be overruled if deemed unreasonable which he said this appeared to be. The Guardian added, This aerial pictures released by Greek authorities of the boats hours before it sank showed dozens of people on the boats, upper and lower decks, looking up, some with arms outstretched. Few, if any, appeared to be wearing a life jacket. The Greek Coast Guard has a grim record when it comes to migrant rights. Earlier this year, the New York Times published footage showing migrants being forced onto a speedboat by Greek authorities. They were then left in a raft close to Turkish waters before being rescued by, by the Turkish Coast Guard. And Voice of America made this report on the news. The video published this week by the New York Times purports to show a group of migrants taken to the shoreline of the Greek island of Lesbos on April 11th in an unmarked white van. The group of 12 includes several small children. They are led by masked men to an inflatable boat, then taken to a Greek Coast Guard vessel offshore, which then sails further away from the coastline. The migrants are seemingly forced into an inflatable life raft and abandoned in the middle of the Aegean Sea. They were reportedly picked up by the Turkish Coast Guard an hour later. The footage, which has not been independently verified by VOA, was filmed by Fayad Müller of the Austrian political organisation Der Wandel, who has spent several years documenting the treatment of migrants landing on Greek shores. He says he has witnessed many such pushbacks. On average, it's every second day that the Turkish Coast Guard finds a life, life raft somewhere at the Aegean borders between um, Turkey and Greece. This is going on for three years. This is a major operation by the Greek state. So I had the idea or the only solution was to get a video from the, of these crimes and to publish it. The Greek government denies conducting pushbacks, despite widespread evidence to the contrary. In January, VOA reported on the death of Turkish migrant Barish Boyuksu, 
Ankara says he died after being tortured on the Greek island of Kos and forced into a dinghy that was pushed back into Turkish waters. Athens denied any knowledge or responsibility. So as I say, we don't have complete confirmation of exactly what happened um, when that ship sank on Wednesday with tragic, terrible consequences. It does seem, though, that there is a bit of a pattern of behaviour here from the Greek Coast Guard. And I mean, I don't think it's unique to the Greek Coast Guard. Um, many European countries, indeed many countries around the world, where what uh, the response they have to people fleeing desperate situations and being in very dangerous situations is to try and push them onto someone else, someone else's problem. So it, it seems pretty plausible that what happened on Wednesday was that this ship was close to Greek waters. The Greek Coast Guard thought, well, it'd be better for us if they sort of continued to go towards Italy because then they're Italy's problem. And so were then somewhat reluctant to use their initiative and as this legal professor in The Guardian has pointed out, said, look, this is an unsafe vessel. We have to rescue the people on board. They didn't do that. Many people have died. Aaron, um, it's shocking if unsurprising, um, this tragedy this week. Yeah, it's obviously a, an appalling tragedy, and it's something which is happening seemingly repeatedly. What it underscores for me, Michael, because of course this time it's had really graphic, horrific consequences, is that Europe does have some of the toughest borders in the world. And Europeans, and I can talk about particularly Brits, because obviously that's the culture I find myself in, British liberals, you know, British progressives, they love to talk about, oh my God, Trump's building a wall. We're building walls here in Europe, across Eastern and Central Europe. We have a maritime border regime in the Mediterranean, which is killing lots and lots and lots of people, huge numbers of people, far larger numbers of people than died trying to cross the Berlin Wall between whatever it was, you know, the early 1950s and 1990. Huge numbers. Uh, and yet somehow, because people in this country associate Europe with progressive values, that, you know, this isn't happening. No, we are living in a continent with some of the most militarized borders on the planet. From the east, central Europe, to the south, uh, east, all the way through to southern Europe, with Spain's border with Morocco. Because, of course, Spain has a land border with Morocco because they have what are effectively legacy colonies on the Moroccan mainland, on, on, on mainland Africa. So yes, it's horrific. And I think this should really highlight the fact we should be under no illusions about the aggressive nature of Europe's borders. What would you see as kind of the alternative? I mean, on the most, most basic level, it's if there is a ship which is in distress, rescue the people on it. That's just basic humanity. But on the point of, of border crossings, I mean, it, it does seem that all these European governments will say, oh, this is a tragedy. But they all kind of know that if they were to say oh, we should be incredibly welcoming of all these people arriving, that they'll have these right-wing populists who are trying to chomp at the bit, um, using that as a reason to get elected, um, or at least get a, get a lift in the pot. How should European governments deal with this in a humane way that doesn't just bolster the far right? Frankly, I think very few people in Europe are serious about this stuff. Very few people. You know, in this country, we have, we have a debate, coming from the right as well, I should add, I'm not, I'm not just attacking the liberals and the left here, coming from the right too. And they say, well, we need to close the borders of so many Afghans and so many Iraqis and so many Iranians. If you don't want Iranians here, drop the sanctions on the Iranian economy. The whole point of those sanctions is to strangle that country's economy where people can't live. And then, and then they say, oh, they're not refugees, they're economic migrants. Well, it's a pretty large category of economic migrant when you're basically destroying a country's capacity to feed, clothe, and look after its citizens, which is what they're trying to do in Iran. Oh, they're economic migrants, they're coming from Iraq. What, after we spent billions of dollars and pounds destroying it back into the Stone Age? 
Oh, they're coming from Afghanistan. Oh, really? After we occupied it for 20 years? By the way, many of them are coming from... I'm surprised at how few are coming from Afghanistan, frankly. Or Syria? Again, I'm no friend of Assad, but this was a, a thing, you know, we, it was trending. Let's, let's have the, a, a, a civil war in Syria as long as possible. That seems to be Western policy. How can we have a permanent civil war in Syria? Okay, well, then these are the consequences. These are the consequences. Yemen, oh, we won't condemn Saudi Arabia. We won't try to minimize, you know, the number of uh, displaced people and, and, and the number of people suffering from, you know, awful diseases uh, or who die or, or get maimed by weapons made here in the UK that are sold to the, the, the Royal Saudi Air Force. No. And then we do all of this. We sell the weapons. We occupy the countries. We impose the sanctions. And when their people come to Europe, we go, where have they come from? They're economic migrants. It's ridiculous. So look, if you're serious, I want you. I, I had this ridiculous encounter with David Starkey the other day. He said, you love illegal immigrants. I said, no, I don't. Nobody, nobody wants illegal immigration. Nobody wants, it's not a good thing. You want legal migration. We clearly need to improve legal routes of migration into this country and the rest of Europe. But first and foremost, we need, we need to minimize the number of people being displaced from their homes. What does that look like? Stop the sanctions, stop the war, stop arms sales, and reform global trade rules so we don't permanently underdevelop the global south. That's the conversation. Only the left has the answers on this stuff. So let's start talking about it. Let's look at the trajectory of Mediterranean crossings. I mean, we hear a lot in this country about crossings on the Channel. Um, the crossings on the Mediterranean are, you know, a big deal. Um, let's look at how they have changed over the years. Um, so this chart is from The Guardian. It shows the number of monthly crossings detected on the EU's borders, um, or on, on, on the EU's borders on the Mediterranean. Um, they were down in May on the previous year at 8,000 people. That's largely due to bad weather that month. But as you can see, um, in general, crossings are on the rise. Of course, still not at levels seen in the refugee crisis during the height of the Syrian civil war. But you can see that those kind of numbers don't seem like a one-off. It seems like we could quite easily be um, at the numbers that were crossing during the Syrian civil war quite quickly. I mean, with climate change, as much as, as, as civil wars, Aaron, this is something that the Europeans are going to have to get an answer to. Or is it something they have to? Is this something that can just sort of continue in this sort of deadly stalemate whereby the Europeans are all trying to put responsibility onto someone else. They say, oh yeah, we're going to respect human rights, but then they're all trying to push boats away. And then every year we, we have these news stories where 500 people, including lots of women and children, have died in the middle of the Mediterranean. Do you think that is actually a status quo that many people, many European leaders think is, is inevitable? There's no alternative to this that so will just plod along um, for the yeah. next 20 years. Well, you've described European politics in a nutshell, right? Passengers. That's what we do. Passenger politics. Our, our living standards slowly decline. Industrial capacity slowly declines. Demographics slowly decline. We get older. Capacity to project power overseas declines. Decline, 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 decline. That's, that's the modus operandi of politicians in this continent. And Britain as well. I obviously include that. We're not in the EU, but we're certainly in Europe. And, and that's just it. And this is one of those crises. You know, we're going to see a profound number of people trying to come to Europe in the next 50 years. We are. So going back to what I previously said, you want to minimize the number of people who do that from uh, avoidable circumstances, i.e. war. We, it's in Europe's interest for Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan to be wealthy countries. It's in our interest. It's not in the interest of our elites because it means that they can extract the values, value from those countries. They can take Iraqi oil. They can ensure one day a favorable Iranian regime where you've got BP and Shell back in Iran taking Iranian gas, making their shareholders rich. By the way, BP, British Petroleum, starts out as Anglo-Iranian oil. 
the whole thing was based upon colonialism. So this is it. It's, it's, it's my way or the highway. Either you're fully subject to our economic interests and you're subject to neocolonialism, or, sorry, guys, we're going to really smash you back and you haven't got a chance. Now, again, this isn't apologists. You know, Twitter, Twitter loves this stuff, doesn't it? Oh, apologists for the Ayatollahs. No, I live in the real world. I live in the real world. I don't want 5, 10, 15 million Iranians coming into Europe because they're displaced because of sanctions. I don't want every Yemeni having to move because their country has been obliterated by Saudi bombs. I live in the real world. Sorry. And I think it's high time actually a few more people started to do it when it comes to this stuff. That's the conflict. Then let's talk about the climate change, which is the thing we can control less, although it's longer term. Well, that means you've got to start paying into collective forms of action with regards to climate mitigation measures, helping these countries decarbonize more quickly, giving them the infrastructure to be able to mitigate the problems like rising sea levels or dealing with extreme weather events, helping them build the infrastructure. But that is not the modus operandi of, of the global community. The global community is our multinationals come to your countries and they screw you over. If you don't accept it, we invade you, we diminish you, we besmirch you, we say you aren't civilized. End of the conversation. That's going to have to end. It's becoming very self-defeating for Europe now in particular. And it will as, as time passes. Because otherwise, you will have tens of millions of people coming here. You will, of course you will. We're, we're trying, it's almost like we're trying to surround ourselves with failed states. We're trying to surround ourselves with failed states from Libya to Syria to Yemen to Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan. I mean, I, I, I presume the State Department and, and MI6 will try a few more yet. Crazy, 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 crazy. And yet it doesn't seem to stop. Let's go on to our next story. Yesterday, I got the email I'd been dreading for months. I'll read it to you. Dear Richard, Michael, and Jordan, as you are aware, your tenancy with us ends on the 14th of August. Currently, you are paying a much reduced rate. If we were to advertise the property for rent, then we would be looking for £3,100 per month. However, if you wish to renew, then we would be able to offer the property to you for a 12-month agreement without a break for £2,700 per calendar month. We would not require any more deposit from you. The deposit level would stay the same. Please do let us know what you would like to do. Kind regards, Lisa. And Lisa is the person who works for the letting agency. We are currently... I'm in our flat paying £2,400 in total. So this email, written as if we're being done a favour, oh, we can offer it to you for this price, you don't have to pay a new deposit. This email is, in fact, hiking my rent by 12.5%. Last summer, we were sent an email with the exact same wording, just with different numbers. That time, it was hiking our rent by 15%. So in total, my rent has been hiked. And uh, we might try and push back a bit on this, but if we don't manage to, our rent will have been hiked by 30% over two years. For context, this is for a free bedroom ex-council flat in East London. It should not be going for £3,100 a month. Aaron, you're a newish homeowner. Can I, can I get some sympathy from you? Well, you get more than my sympathy, Michael. You get my solidarity. And you get my recognition that the situation you face as a renter is immeasurably harder than the situation I face as an owner-occupier, even though interest rates have gone up. You've got people in mortgages saying, oh yeah, it's hard for me too. My interest rates have gone up. My mortgage is more expensive. Yeah, you're investing an asset you get to keep. So even the worst possible situation for a mortgage holder, even if you're in negative equity temporarily, I'd still prefer that to being a renter. It's ridiculous, Michael. We've heard from the economic whiz kids and the politicians and the policy people and the, the, the clever old right-wing journalists in this country, oh, you can't ask for high wages because then we'll have a wage price spiral. Okay? 
even though the inflation we're experiencing right now today, not in 12 months' time, today, has very little to do with wages going up. Public sector wages went up 5%, private sector wages went up 7%. Headline inflation is above that significantly. So people are getting poorer. But if you don't get really poor really quickly, then you get accused of a wage price spiral. You're already going to push inflation up. Why is nobody saying to landlords, you're going to create a rent price spiral? You're contributing to inflation. Stop it. Have you heard a single politician say that, Michael? I've heard it almost every single time there are trade unionists trying to get better wages, not rising wages, wages that mean they don't get poorer, wages that keep up with inflation. You'll create a wage price spiral. Where are the people criticizing the landlords? It's almost like it's rigged. It's almost like certain interests in society can get what they want, and nobody in the media says a thing because their material interests align with them. Interesting. 30% over two years, right? So that is, can you imagine if a public sector union had said we want 30% over two years? In fact, we, we, we've seen one, right? So the junior doctors say we want pay restoration because they've had their wages cut by 25% or 26% since 2010. That means to restore their pay to that level, they'd need a 35% pay increase. They've said, you know, this doesn't need to be in a year. We just need a roadmap to get back to that figure. All the right-wing press are saying, that's crazy. Of course, who the hell do they think we are that they can get 35% pay increase? Remember, they're doing one of the hardest jobs in the country. They've just had a really appalling time during the pandemic. Lots of them got PTSD after having to, I mean, watch quite a lot of people die when they weren't able to help in the way that they would have liked to have done because their health service was on its knees. Landlords, they've had quite an easy pandemic. They've had quite an easy few decades, in fact. And now they get to ask for a 30% pay rise and we're supposed to just take it. I mean, we kind of just have to take it because unfortunately, it's very difficult to organize as renters because you've all got different landlords. You know, it's, it's hard to have a tenants union in a country or a successful tenants union in a country where you've got all these different landlords because a rent strike would be somewhat confusing when you've all got different landlords. You see what I mean? No one is saying this causes a rent price spiral, which it does, right? Because obviously, if the free people in my house, if we have to pay 30% more than we did two years ago, we're going to be asking our bosses for pay increases, right? And that, that's the whole point of how a wage price spiral is supposed to work. Oh, if one person gets this pay rise and this person's, that's going to increase someone else's cost, so they're going to have to get a pay rise as well. Now, this is my cost being increased by more than any other sector, right? Everyone's talking about, oh, en energy bills, huge problem, serious, serious issue. Rent dwarfs it, completely dwarfs it if you're in the private rental sector. I've got some more news for you on renting in a moment. Just quickly, I want to say that none of this show on Navarra Media would be possible without the backing of you, our viewers. So a big thank you for supporting us. If you want to fund independent media, head to navarramedia.com slash support and donate one hour's wage a month or whatever you can afford. That link, as ever, is in the YouTube description box below. Back to renting. The Financial Times had a report this week on the current rental crisis. They wrote this, rising interest rates have slammed the brakes on the runaway market for UK home sales. In contrast, the rental market is still red hot. That's one way of putting it. Newly let properties are 25% more expensive than before the COVID-19 pandemic hit in 2020, according to estate agents Hamptons, and still rising at 9% in May compared with the year before. So my situation of 30% increases since the start of COVID are not unusual. The average is 25%, so just slightly above that. Um, the FT also have some quotes. This is the worst supply and demand balance we have ever seen, and it's only going to get worse. That's Guy Gittens, chief executive of Foxton's. And the FT write, in April, the agency had 97,000 tenants chasing after just 2,000 
available properties. And another quote, rents will continue to rise ahead of incomes unless we see a sustained increase in rental supply or a material weakening in demand, both of which appear unlikely. Um, that was said by Richard Donnell, Executive Director at Zoopla. That's a website where you can search for properties. And the number of available rental properties listed on the site is currently 33% lower than before the pandemic, and it has flatlined with homes getting snapped up as quickly as they come on. It's not looking good, is it? And that's why it's so depressing when you get emails like that, because you know that they have you over a barrel. When I got exactly the same email 12 months ago, I've said this before, I'm on the show and my podcast about renting. My initial response was always to say, bullshit, of course you can't rent this free person ex council flat for £3,100 if you put it on the market now. Of course, that's crazy. They're just trying to dupe us into saying yes. Again, I did exactly the same thing I did last summer, which was look on the, the rental websites. And there are a lot of flats which are actually not as nice as mine, frankly, going for £3,100 a month. Ex-council flats. Ridiculous. These are houses that were built by the state to serve the public good. And now they've been privatized and you've got price gouging from landlords saying, well, the market's moved, so we're going to have to take an even bigger chunk of your wage. And if you can't manage it, meh, that's the market. If you say, how long will the rental crisis, housing crisis in this country carry on for? Can't go on forever, can it? It will go on until we build around five, six million new homes. That's how long it'll last. Could be five years, could be 10 years, could be 50 years. Now, that's the, that's the shortfall right now. Obviously, it'll go up over time. It's getting worse every year. So that's, that's the issue. That said, of course, we can do certain things which will mitigate the problem. We could introduce longer contract periods for tenants. We could change things like no-fault evictions and so on. Um, so that's not to say there are things that we, you know, we, we can't do because, you know, this is such an extraordinarily large problem. It needs an extraordinarily large solution, which is, which is obviously the case. But there are things we can do in the, in the interim period to make life easier for renters. Um, there's just a few things I want to pick up here, Michael. The first is, as a, as again, as an owner-occupier, if people are watching this, if you're a renter, you, know, you can go on Zoopla and you can find out the value of a house to buy or sell. Do it with your property that you're renting. Because I promise you, it's still worth more than it was a year ago, significantly significantly. Virtually everywhere in the UK will be, apart from maybe bits of London. So people go, oh, well, house prices are down 3% on this time last year. They've gone up 25% since COVID. So what? 3%. Oh, God. You know, you see all these like, panic attacks in the Financial Times. Oh, my God, house prices aren't going up forever. Oh, my God. Yeah. But the idea that somehow homeowners are really feeling the pinch as well as renters. Come on. Oh, what, their house is worth 3% less than 12 months ago after, after going up... 25% in the preceding two and a half years. Relax. That doesn't sound like a, a stressful situation. Then about the wage price spiral, um, Michael. You know, all the pundits, this is the thing I'm going to say next time I speak to a pundit or a you know, right-wing talking head on legacy media, and they say, but if they ask for higher wages, it will create more inflation. If they say that. You know what I'm going to say? Take a pay cut. If you want to help, okay, by that, by that logic then, if you think it's good that we have wage repression will help get inflation down, you take a pay cut. Do something in the public interest. I'll say that to, to Farage or Jacob Rees-Mogg. Take a pay cut. Ask to be paid 20% less to help get inflation down. Are you not going to do it? Oh, you're not that serious about the wage price spiral, are you? Or conversely, if I offer you a 25% pay rise, you're going to say no, really? Oh, I won't do that. Oh, no, I won't do that, Aaron, because inflation will go up. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to you know, get inflation going. Of course they would take the pay rise. The level of hypocrisy around this is just absurd and obscene. And the fact it can even stand up on two legs for more than five seconds is because very few sensible people in legacy media, like you and me, Michael, exist. 
Oh, it's making me too making me too annoyed. Let's move on to our next story, which is actually quite a light-hearted one. Thank God. Andrew Lloyd Webber is an incredibly successful composer who's penned musicals such as The Phantom of the Opera Cats and Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. But the 75-year-old has said that political correctness has now stopped him from writing any more musicals. Um, so he told a podcast, This, if I were to be doing Evita today, a lot of people would say he's not qualified to do this because he's not Argentine. This is staggering. There was a subject I really wanted to do, but everyone was saying to me, you can't because you're not from that country. That means most shows and operas would not be allowed today because the composer is a different nationality to the subject. Lloyd Webber said he was encouraged to make a musical about a safe story, such as Pride and Prejudice, but he has no plans to do so. I think this is a very useful thing for older men to say. Um, look, psychologically, we know that we are disposed to thinking that basically the world was perfect between the ages of around 18 and 25. That the memories and the associations we form then stay with us the rest of our lives. The music you like between 18 and 25 is the music you, that will move you and produce dopamine when you're 70. Okay, That doesn't mean the music of 50 years' time is crap. That's just how we're wired. And I feel like there's we're in this weird moment, Michael, where older men in particular don't seem to get this. They don't seem to get that society moves on. And generations change. You can see in the LGBT debate, right? Oh well, when I was, you know, when I was 15, we didn't have people saying that, you know, they, they were gender curious or they felt this way or that way. Yeah. Okay. Right. And when you were 15, your grandparents would have said to you, oh wow, 20 year old guys are ambivalent about getting married, or you tried cannabis at school, or you drunk. They, you know, these things change over time. Michael, I saw an amazing, amazing bit of data recently. You'll love this. There was a bunch of people in the United States, and they were surveyed final year of school, high school, okay? Um, and they were born in 1960, so they're sort of borderline boomers, but they're still boomers. They were leaving school in 78. Almost all of them had tried alcohol. Over 40% had binge done binge drinking. 25% had tried amphetamines. 25%. 40% tried cannabis, marijuana. And yet these same people today, those same people in that poll, it was a big poll, by the way, so I think it's quite representative of the, of the generational cohort more broadly. Those same people today will look at young people and they'll say, young people today, what terrorize? A quarter of you were doing amphetamines at school. You know this, Michael. This is one of the great things about getting older. I look at young kids now. They drink less. They smoke less. They get in fights less. They're less violent. We know this. We know this because of data. Yet somebody like Andrew Lloyd Webber will say, no, no. When I was younger, there was, it was, uh, you know, it was sweets and sugar and there was rivers of honey and there were seas of lemonade and, uh, you know, nothing bad happened. And we had a wonderfully deliberative open culture. Nobody got cancelled. What he doesn't mention is the fact that even at the BBC in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, thousands of people were vetted to work in the BBC purely on the basis of their political views. Well, and, and the people that weren't hired on the BBC on the basis of their views, were they being cancelled? It was so pervasive throughout our entire culture, you didn't even know what was going on. So the idea that this is somehow new, we have never lived in a more free uh, society when it comes to articulating your views. Now, I'll add a caveat to that. We have these things, right? And computers, which means that people can have an opinion, express an opinion, they can push back against something at very low cost. It's frictionless. 
If you read a headline in a newspaper 30 years ago, you'd have to write a letter and it might get published. It might not. Now it requires a few taps on your, your phone. So yeah, we have more disagreement, more dissent, more arguments than ever before. But the idea that that's somehow curtailing artistic expression and freedom is nonsense. And of course, it comes with downsides. I'm not saying it's perfect. But the idea that the thing preceded it in the 60s and the 70s, this halcyon period, which, which Andrew Lloyd Webber seems to care about so much, it's, it's a complete nonsense. It is a complete nonsense. When it comes to um, uh, scrutinizing power and authority from powerful men, you know, sexually harassing women, uh, to police violence and how that's being covered now because of the use of mobile phones and the internet, this is an age of freedom and free expression. Has big downsides and disadvantages, but you couldn't be more wrong. Sometimes I do find like the debates on Twitter about cultural appropriation a little bit like alienating, and I think borrowing from different cultures is is fine. And writing about people that aren't yourself is is not necessarily a problem. But um, I do not trust Andrew Lloyd Webber to be the judge of that because he has long been known as a bit of a reactionary. In 1997, he was made a Tory peer in the House of Lords, and in 2015, Lloyd Webber flew back from New York in his own personal plane to vote in favour of David Cameron and George Osborne's plans to cut working tax credits. And his opposition to the Labour Party has been referenced in popular culture, such as this sketch from Spitting Image. Honestly, if Labour win, I'll emigrate, I'll leave immediately, and my new musical will be cancelled. That was a party election broadcast by the Labour Party. When Spitting Image used to be funny. Very good. Um, yeah, if Andrew Lloyd Webber doesn't, doesn't write any more musicals, I won't be upset at all. Um, so I suppose this is, a, this is a win for cancel culture. Keep, keep it up, guys. Keep it up. Final story. Mick Lynch has a habit of getting under journalists' skin, but now one of them has had a change of heart. Ian Dale is a former Tory advisor who now hosts LBC's weekday evening show, and he's written in Prospect magazine that Mick Lynch is right. So the background for the change of heart is that in recent months, Ian Dale has broken his hip and damaged his knee. Um, and in Prospect Magazine, he writes this. One of the positive things about breaking a knee and a hip within nine months, and believe me, I have searched for crumbs of comfort, is that you learn what it's like on public transport for people who are permanently disabled. You learn how fantastic railway station staff are in their ability to anticipate your needs. You learn that train guards have a function other than to check that people have tickets. In short, you learn that trade union leader Mick Lynch, who everyone thinks is my lookalike, is right. Before my accidents, I argued that in the modern age, we don't need train guards or station staff. I now know better. Sorry. I'm a big fan of people recognizing when they're wrong and apologizing. Um, I suppose at the same time, I don't want to make this about Ian Dale because I think Ian Dale has done the right thing. In, you know, sort of coming out and saying publicly he got this wrong. But I think the, the whole political class in this country seems to have completely ignored this argument, which, you know, Ian Dell is not the first person to make this argument, right? There are many people in this country who have permanent disabilities and they haven't exactly been silent about the fact that it's helpful to have guards on trains and attendants on stations, but for some reason, no one has listened to them. Obviously, on this show, we talk a lot about how it's actually very important to have a well-staffed train service. The idea that a modern train service is one without any people is is ridiculous. All the best quality train services, I mean, I've, I've been to Germany, lots of people. I'm told that when you go to Japan, like the station is just full of people working there. Um, and that, they are the places where people say those are the best quality 
public transport systems because it's nice to have people around who you can ask questions to. It's nice even if you're someone like myself who doesn't have permanent disabilities to be able to ask someone questions or ask them for help if you need it. If you're someone with a permanent disability, then it's it's not just nice, it's necessary to have someone around who you can ask for support, obviously depending on what disability you have. It's obviously welcome that he's changed his mind on this, Michael. It's a good thing. But it does say something quite interesting about, you know, the all right, I'm all right, Jack, tendency of the Conservative Party. Now, I'm all right, Jack. I don't need job seekers. Allowance. I've got a job. Those scroungers, cut it. Oh, no, I'm, un- I'm unemployed. No, actually, no, I really want job seekers allowance. It should be higher. Why is it so low? Oh, I'm, he- I'm fit and healthy. NHS cuts, doesn't matter. I'm all right, Jack. They get, you know, an illness. Oh, no. Fund the NHS. I was wrong. I'm not all right, Jack. And, and now we have it with this. Public rail. Oh, I, I, I thought, fuck other people because I was fine. And now I'm one of those other people. Actually, I was wrong. You know, the problem with that is, Michael, it's obviously very welcome. It's very welcome. And it's good when people publicly state they've changed their mind. Great. Really good. We don't want to disincentivize that. It's really good. Really good. But clearly, not, not, you're not going to get everybody having that experience. So the idea that you can only arrive at those conclusions if you experience them yourselves is not going to create a social majority to say, well, let's have guard on, a guard on the train because it helps people with disabilities, because not everybody will find themselves in that situation at the same time, okay? Obviously, we will as we get older, but that's not how society works. And this is why a political philosopher called John Rawls created something called the veil of ignorance. How would you construct society if you didn't know who you were, you didn't know your gender, didn't know your race, didn't know your, your bodily abilities, how tall or short you are, how long you'll live, what chronic conditions you'll have? If you didn't know any of that, you were just this kind of pure thinking essence, devoid of human characteristics, how would you build society? You would build society in a quite profoundly different way to how we've done it. So I think that thought experiment of the veil of ignorance is hopefully the way that people will think about creating public services rather than having to fall on hard times themselves. Because it's, 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 it's good he's changed his mind, but not everybody is going to be unemployed at the same time. Not everybody's going to be suffering from a disability at the same time or not be able to access housing at the same time. Because, of course, once you've been through these things, you become an evangelist for social housing, guard on the train, job seeks allowance. But it's a daft way to build political arguments. I was wrong until I experienced this thing. How about you have the insight to uh, think about what it's like to live in somebody else's shoes? And if you did live in their shoes, how would you build that service? This is something which conservatives seem pathologically incapable of doing. I agree with all that. I think it also does show like, you know, because it's often scoffed at, you know, this idea of diversity in in newsrooms is just identity politics. And, you know, the representation doesn't matter that much. What matters is the content. But I do think that the two things are connected, right? And I sometimes feel like I have to check myself about this. So I sort of used to say, I mean, I still say that, you know, the, the thing that I can get most irate about most easily on the show is the condition of renters and how they're exploited by landlords. But I have to sort of be honest with myself that probably the reason that comes so naturally is because that's one of the, you know, the the boxes of oppressed group that I fall into. You know, as like a white middle class guy, there are many oppressed box groups that I don't tick, right? And as someone who's got like a, a job where I don't have a boss breathing down my neck. And it's only really as a renter that I am, you know... Uh, I have like real sort of political agency as an oppressed person. And so you do have to recognize, am I only speaking with passion about that? Because that's me. And then should I also 
make sure that I can get just as passionate about oppressions felt by people who are not in an identity group I, I am. And I think we should all strive for that. But it is harder, right? Which is why it does matter that there should be more people of more different identity groups hosting LBC shows or hosting Navarro shows. We're working on it. Um, because it is much easier to speak with passion from your own experience, however much you try to speak with, you know, real, pure, sort of, let's say, dispersonal, is that even a word? Depersonalized? Um, uh, getting outside of your ego to properly get as passionate about other people's struggles as you do as your own. Uh, what do you think, Aaron? Do you ever find that? Do you ever think that you're, you're getting more passionate about things that affect you than than things that affect other people and then feel like, oh, is that okay? No. No. The housing crisis is extraordinary, Michael. I've, I've escaped it. I'm, a, I'm an owner-occupier. And that has brought home the, scape, the, scape, the scope of the problem, rather. Even That has brought home the scope of the problem even more. It's even more obvious to me now because I see how the other side live. So I think your obsession with the housing crisis, yeah, I'm sure it's partly to do with your experience, but it's also very, very, very real. I'd also, I'd also push back on the identity thing. You know, because there will be people with disabilities who view how other people with disabilities should be treated. You know, the idea that it's a, a big homogenous block and they all agree is inaccurate. You know, but the great example of this was with, with the LGBT community, the trans community in particular. And you had Caitlyn Jenner saying things that, frankly, if a working class trans woman was trying to transition, coming up against all the societal barriers, whatever at work, whatever in their community, et cetera, et cetera, it's a very different experience to a very wealthy, highly connected person in Hollywood. So to an extent, I agree with you. And I certainly think diversity in newsrooms, let's give one example, isn't a bolt-on. I think it's constitutive of creating good news. But you need to be wary of creating individuals as necessarily representative of their community. Nobody hires a white guy and says, you know what, let's hire John Brown, that white guy, because he can, he can talk on behalf of all the white people. Nobody says that. Nobody says that because it's silly. So it's also equally silly to say that about black people or brown people or LGBT people. Uh, that's just my view. It's not an argument against diversity, by the way, but it's just something to check uh, the presumption that necessarily those people will encompass a very wide range of views as well. I mean, we've seen this particularly with the, you know, the debate around um, the British left and Jewish people in this country. Clearly, the majority of Jewish people, if you look at any poll, uh, have real misgivings about, around the left, Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, etc. Now, I disagree with them. What, what those people think, I don't think is objectively true. If a majority of British Iranians tomorrow said that Michael Walker is the worst person on earth, you know, I, I would say, well, there are objective facts and, you know, the Iranian community doesn't speak for me. So I, I think it's a bit, a bit more complicated than that. And I, I think as well with regards to identities, it's not an identity, this is the key thing here, Michael. And you said the word oppression. You're not oppressed as a renter, you're exploited. There's a difference. Workers, renters are exploited. Oppression is something very, very different because tomorrow you could win the lottery. You're a homeowner, right? You're no longer subject to that axis of exploitation. When you're a woman, a black person, brown person, trans person, whatever, these axes of oppression are rather different. You know, you, you, you cannot leave that status in the same way that you can potentially uh, leave an exploitative status, be it as a renter or as a, as a worker employee. So I, I think there's some wisdom to that, Michael, but perhaps there's a little bit of a nuance different between the both of us. No, I think that was very well put. And I'm glad that even if the Iranian community decides I'm the worst person in the world, you will tell them that I am not the worst person in the world. But 
potentially a low bar, but I'm I'm happy with it. Um, Aaron Bastani, it's been a pleasure, as always, talking to you on a Friday evening. Michael, I'll always be here for you. I'll always stand by my man. And I will always stand by you, Aaron. We're going to get a bit teary tonight. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Have a fantastic weekend. And um, the show is back here on Monday, live from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.